0: For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western
1: hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges.
0: Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool
2: their nose. 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect.
0: If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you.
2: Welcome back to another episode of the Western Rookie Podcast. This is your host, Brian Krebs, and I'm very excited about today's episode because it is going to be Packed full of very applicable experience tips and knowledge from I would say someone that spent the better part of not only his career but also his life gathering experience and knowledge. And that's John Barklow, founder of Knowledge from Storms, recent, I don't know, is it author or producer of an outdoor class series on on backcountry mission planning? And you've got some industry experience as well. So how are you doing today, John?
1: I'm doing well, Brian, and I appreciate your reaching out, man.
2: Yeah, I'm glad that we were able to to set this up. I know I know you're a busy guy, and I know that that probably doesn't get any easier the farther into the year we get. So it's good to do this now.
1: <laughs> yes, your timing was good. Let's just put it that way.
2: Yeah, Yeah, yeah. soon we'll be getting into – I mean, already it's summer, and soon we will be getting into some of those really early season trips, and then that rolls right into – you know, the full season. And then I suppose you're busy with trade shows most of the spring.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is a pretty good time right now. I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of, we still have a, a black bear season out here, depending on what part of the state I'm in Montana till mid June. Um, I, I didn't get out after Turkey. It's not really a, a passion of mine, but yeah, it goes from there right to a bunch of events, retailer events, uh, fundraising events with Rocky mountain elk, etc., tack events, and then by mid-August, we're we're uh, antelope hunting, archery antelope hunting, and it just does not slow down until probably December first-ish. Yeah, take a break off for the holidays. Maybe um, I have a couple hunts peppered in December, January, and then it's in the show season. Yeah, so it just rolls.
2: How many of how? Before we get really into the meat of the episode, how many of your trips are? john's vacation trips and how many of them are john's business trips
1: yeah it's it's an interesting it's a great question um it's interesting you say that a buddy of mine who lives in alaska good hunting buddy of mine you know he was down here a couple years in a row hunting antelope and so he you know we're just hanging out and he's like man you you never take you never take any any time off or you never take a day off and i'm like what are you talking about and he's like, well, you know, you're constantly working. I'm like, what do you mean working? He's like, well, you know, working on like hunting gear and stuff like that. And I'm like, dude, this is just my life. Like if I wasn't getting paid for what I'm doing, I'd be doing it anyways, just for my own personal, and I did right for my own personal satisfaction. Um, so it's hard for me to separate, but if you're asking how many are, uh, you know, a year are, you know, SICA sponsored, I would say at the most one most of them are, are my own. Okay. You're just leveraging
2: yep. them to maybe test out a new idea or a product you've had. And you're, like you said, you're going hunting anyway, you got this new piece of gear you'd like to get in the field and feel it for yourself. And so you might just bring that along. And that's where your buddy's like, you're always kind of working. You're always in that work mode, but this is our own trip.
1: Yeah. But it's, I mean, you know, I mean, I we say work with quotes, but I, it's not like I'm going to go elk hunt and not bring my latest and greatest, you know, idea into the field. And I would, I'm a very hands-on person. So I would rather test it first before I gave it to, you know, somebody who is going on their own hunt or a guide who potentially could compromise their safety or a client's success. You know, I have to try it first. And and obviously I'm not doing it because I don't believe in it. So it's like, man, I can't wait to get in the field and try it. Yeah. Um, but that's often why I'm not you don't see me post a lot about my own personal hunts, one, because I I don't really think they're all that relevant, but two, because most of the time I'm wearing things that I can't show people, right. For, for sometimes years. So yeah, it's, it's, it all morphs, but, but I would say sponsored hunts is probably, you know, on, on a good year, once a year, I mean, on a good year, maybe twice, but it's been about once a year for the last couple of years. Yeah. And that's still, I mean, the that lifestyle oh, it's is great.
2: the dream of a lot of people that have that dream and and it's amazing yeah. to be able to do that and and that was we were kind of talking about elk hunting before we started recording but just you know setting realistic worldly expectations for re- really what is success in the west and and i think elk is the i would say in my own mind it's the champion of western hunting it's the you know it seems like that's the one there's obviously other animals that that are a little bit harder to to you know get tags or bring home but it seems like elk is the big one and you've got a lot of experience being you know big part of the big game team at Sitka. your knowledge from knowledge from storms all the connections and the outdoor class all of that stuff where do you what do you define as a successful elk hunt
1: yeah that's another really good question um I would, I'm not, I'm not going to cop out. I'll answer your question, but I think that the, the answer changes as the, the person evolves mm-hmm. through their, uh, you know, experience. I, I, I don't want to call it a career, but as, as X just grow as an outdoorsman. Right. Um, so, you know, I put my own limitations or my own expectations on, on certain hunts and, and elk is always like elk is always my number one priority if, if If everything else falls apart and I can't do anything, I can't get time off, whatever the case may be, I have to go elk hunt, um, at least in Montana, right? So that, that is my number one uh, focus. So I've got certain expectations for me at at this point in time, uh, you know, having killed some bulls that, you know i i wouldn't necessarily recommend to other people to include friends of mine some of which have you know who, who live here or i even work with um but to me ultimately like the way i define success if i if i come home with an elk or not is i want to do what i call play the game and what i mean by that is i want to go out i want to find my target species And I want to have the interactions that I'm looking for with them. So be it if I choose to call or I choose to stalk, but you know, I want to find elk. I want to find, uh, some type of, of target animal or animals, and I want to have that interaction with them. So at the end of the day, you know, if I, if I don't get a shot, um, like last year in Montana, you know, I, I had an awesome, awesome hunt whole season. You know, I didn't kill a bull in Montana. I killed one in Utah, but I got to play the game in Montana multiple, multiple, multiple times, had more calling interactions than I've ever had, called some elk in for friends. To me, that was a huge success. That was a great, successful season for me, um, even though I didn't personally kill, you know, my own bull in Montana that year.
2: That's a really good way to put it. And I, I think that's, you know, if we, I think that's how we would view it too. You know, when we go on these archery hunts, you know, last last year we were just west of you, um, archery hunting in Montana, and we got into a a big herd one evening, and their elk were the bulls were bugling. There were satellite bulls. I mean, this herd was a lot bigger than we were intending to get into. Right, usually that second third week of September, you're looking for like a bull, maybe six eight ten cows. Well, this was you know more like forty elk, multiple satellites, a couple rag horns, one dominant herd bull, and man was it wild i mean that was an incredible experience and it really defined the hunt and then we you know we yeah. popped a tire in the middle of a thunderstorm and had a bunch of other issues going on and that really we didn't end up bringing one home either but we counted it a successful hunt cuz like you said we were we were in the game we were there we things could have gone a different direction and we could have brought home an elk very easily
1: yeah yeah you know the cool thing about hunting is Obviously, there's rules and regulations, right, that are that are mandated by, say, the states. We also have our own uh, style that we bring to it and our own uh, definition of success. I've got um, an article coming out in my my next newsletter about this, you know, style matters. But uh, I think we all have to define that for ourselves. And again, that can that can evolve. Right. So I think one of the classic mistakes, my opinion, that that people make to include some friends, you know, who have hunted seven, eight, 10 years now in the West for elk archery, and and they've yet to kill, uh, you know, an elk, period, let alone a big elk, right? Or whatever you define as a big elk. And when you talk to them, you know, they're like, yeah, man, like I had an opportunity to shoot like, you know, and everybody throws a number out there, which is almost inevitably wrong. um, Overinflated for sure. But, you know, they're like, hey, man, like I had a five point come in. Right. Or I had a six point or I had like a 320 bull come in. And I'm like, oh, oh my. uh, Yeah. And and they're like, yeah, I passed because, you know, uh, I was hoping for something bigger or I heard another bugle and I wanted to see what what it was. And I'm like, that's cool. Like that. That's cool. That's the cool thing about hunting. But I also because they're friends of mine, tell them in the next breath that they're idiots. (laughs) right and what i mean by that is like you've never killed an elk be it a cow or a bull you've never killed maybe something you know an elk with your bow uh whatever the case may be or you've never done it on public land or you've never done a solar what whatever the you know the definition of that hunt is and i'm like bro you need to get reps under your belt you need to kill your first elk with a bow before in my opinion before you start putting a number to it right or before you start uh, applying more metrics, it makes it more difficult than it already is because it's incredibly difficult, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've killed some, you know, I've killed some good bulls, not not great bulls. I mean, everybody's definition, but I've killed one great bull and some really good bulls. But I was telling you before we jumped on air, I've also killed a heck of a lot more raghorns. I've walked away from seasons without an elk, right? Um, I consider them almost I consider every season I could think of, they're all successes, right? Me killing a big bull or not is not necessarily my definition of success. Like I said, I want to play the game. But if you've never killed one or you're coming from, you know, Pennsylvania, or I'll pick on my home state. If you come from Ohio out west to hunt elk and you've never been out here and you've never seen a big animal, if you've never heard a bugle, or if you've never, you know, all these things, I think that you should take your – the the first reasonable opportunity at a legal animal, target animal that you can. And I think that that will help you get those reps and, and build that experience level so that if and when you get that, you know, 326 by 6 herd bull coming in, you, you, you're not as rattled because you've got some reps under your belt.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say almost the same thing. You know, I've been fortunate to take two rifle bowls, but when it comes to archery equipment, I've been a part of a lot of them. I've watched my brother shoot three right in front of me, but I haven't yet done it, and I'm still at the phase where I would shoot any legal elk. I'm maybe not a calf, because... Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Like, I'd maybe try to get, like, a cow, but if there's a calf, there's usually a cow in the game, too, at in September, at least. And so... Yeah, I'm raghorn. You know, if it's illegal to shoot spikes in whatever unit we're hunting, I would shoot a spike, shoot a cow. And I'd really strongly encourage someone, like it's coming from Ohio or my home state of Minnesota, they've never done it before. You know, like even if it is a rifle hunt, you know, i shoot an elk. It's okay to be done on the first day or the second day of your first hunt. I mean, that's amazing. How many people do you know that went out and shot their first elk on their first day of their first season? I don't know any of
1: them. Yeah, right well, it the the cool thing is it's a very personal thing. And, like I said, within the rules, you know, and regulations of of the state, uh, everybody can define their own success, right? and they can and they can make whatever adventure out of it they want. But I, I just think that you know when you see somebody who's seven, eight, ten years in, and they haven't shot anything yet, but they've had opportunities, A lot of times those are pretty disappointed hunters. And I think that they're passing up opportunities to one, gain valuable experience, confidence in themselves, confidence in their setup. I'm talking archery here, but it could be rifle. Um, and the other thing is I realized this a long time ago when I was, you know, going into the ninth inning on a hunt and hadn't killed an elk that year. And it was going to be like, that was it for me if I didn't kill one and ended up killing a, you know, a a raghorn. And I realized that the meat was more important to me than, than the horns were. And that I was going to be really disappointed and pissed off if I didn't kill an elk and have elk meat in the freezer that year. Um, And so, you know, it could have been a cow that walked by, I was going to shoot it, but you know, that's when I realized for me personally, like that was important. So uh, I just think that, you know, to each his own, right. I'm not, I'm not judging, but I, I think that I get people all the time, reach out to me on social media and they're like, Hey man, like. You know, here's my first whitetail with the bow, or here's my first elk with the bow, or here's my first, you know, black bear, or whatever, and and then inevitably it's dot dot dot, but you know it wasn't that big or it wasn't that old, and I'm like, do not ever apologize for what you kill, ever. Yeah. Um. It, yeah, it's not going to play great on social media, but honestly, I think probably more of that needs to be on social media so people understand more of the reality and not just posting, you know, our greatest clips from our hunting life. Um, that kind of, it kind of, it kind of paints the wrong picture of, you know, what we're trying to do. Like you come, even when you live here in Montana, in Idaho, in Colorado, and you go out on public land with a bow or a rifle, but you know, I'm generally a bow hunter. Uh, and you pursue elk, like The odds of you being successful are so slim. Um, But when you, even when I live here, you come from back East and you've never been here or it's an area because you keep going to a different area every year. Like, man, it is PhD level hunting. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people understand that. So if I were to come to, let's just say you had a farm, right? Or a piece of property to whitetail hunt. And I showed up and I had no trail cam picks. I had no idea. All I had was an Onyx map. And I had to go set up my own tree stands and all that. My chances of success are far less than yours, right? Yeah. You're doing that and you're coming out to public land and gonna hunt millions of acres of public land. It it just takes a while to figure it out. And I just think that people should understand that, not to discourage them, to actually encourage them that this is just gonna be a multi year journey and that's cool and they should really embrace it.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean I think Randy, you know, says it really well when he says, I would rather hunt elk every year with an over-the-counter or a general tag than wait 10 years on a limited entry because that that experience you gain along the way is the, is the entire, that's the entire difference.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, you know, I grew up in Ohio, like I said, self-taught archery hunter, fur whitetail, like, you know, again, you want to talk about another really difficult pursuit, especially self-taught and, uh, I was miserable. Like I, I never killed one. Right. Um, but you know, in my adult life, I'd go, I would travel back East and go to these different places cause I, I loved a whitetail hunt and I still wasn't finding success, you know, trying to pick like three days, five days, whatever, even seven days, and then finally, when I said, you know what, I'm going to either, you know, lease a piece of property with some buddies, or I'm going to, you know, chalk two weeks on my calendar and that's the time I'm going to spend. Inevitably, that's when I started finding some success with whitetails because I was out there for, you know, generally speaking, it took me 10 days to kill a buck, right? It wasn't like trying to kill the biggest buck in the woods, but you know, at least a somewhat mature representative species, but that's what it took. And it took years and years and years and years and years for me to get there. Um, and it, it, listen, it took the same thing for elk, but nobody wants to talk about that journey. They just show like where they are in the here and now. Yeah. And it just doesn't show the, you know, the full picture sometimes.
2: Yeah. I think that's a really good way to put it is, is is be prepared for the long game and you will find success along the journey. Like you said, it's not really a career, more of a journey. And every year you get better. Every year you learn some things. Oh yeah. You pick up skills, which, which is really, I mean, that's the backcountry mission planning and the knowledge from storms. It seems like that's what your brands, your personal brands are all about is, is acquiring skills and knowledge that are going to help you get to that success one day.
1: Yeah. And and to me, that's kind of the fun part, right? It's like, building that and enjoying that journey and, and just kind of figuring it out as you go. And, and, uh, that's like the evolution or the journey, you know, of the outdoorsman. And, you know, a lot of it is just trying to figure out different animal species and like how they react and what terrain they want to be in. And it's like, you know, I've hunted a lot of mule deer and I've killed some decent mule deer, but, you know, I went down to hunt in Arizona several years ago in January with some like incredible mule deer hunters. And I felt like an absolute rookie first day, first year mule deer hunter. I couldn't, as a matter of fact, if they weren't there, I'd still be sitting on that glass and knob looking for a buck. Like I never did see one. Like, you know, the guy's like even letting me look through his binos. He's like, you see it? And I'm like, no, I still don't see it, man. And he's like, all right, well, I'm just going to tell you where to go and and get a stock in. And it was just the terrain was so different, right? And where they lived was so different and how they acted. And so, but that's just a cool part where you take that skill and put it in your quiver. And you're like, man, next time I go to the desert and hunt meal there, I'm going to be that much better.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I mean, you you just keep learning things and you never really know when you'll pick that skill back up. Uh, Maybe you get into a different part of terrain in Montana and you're like, Hey, this kind of is a little bit of the same stuff I was doing in Arizona. And I remember yeah. what we were doing down there and now I'm going to apply it to this situation or it's a little different. I can tweak things about it, but it's still the base is the same. Um, yeah. And that's, that's kind of where I wanted to ask you. So you've done I mean, looking at your website, two decades of, of teaching special operations forces about survival skills and, and, and a, Capabilities, right? Knowledge, experience about the backcountry. So you got a lot of professional training. I mean, obviously, sitka is also professional in a way too. But you know, yeah, probably some of the world's best survival experts are in that group of people that you were working with on the special operations side of the business was there a was there a, a a black and white transition from training that group of people to retiring and and moving directly into the like the hunting and the and the woodsmanship genre or was there more of a slow gradual transition to to what you're doing today
1: yeah it it definitely wasn't black and white it was it was uh it was a little more gradual i mean you know i i teach we'll we'll say i taught during the week right it wasn't actually that way but you know, I would teach and then I would take some of what I was teaching or quite frankly, I learned a lot from students as well, right? Sometimes you learn what not to do. Sometimes you learn what to do. Yeah. Sometimes you learn a different way of communicating a, a skill set or a capability. But, and then I would go, uh, cause I was up in Alaska at the time that, that, that that was, some of that was going on and, uh, and I'd go hunt, right. And then I'd apply those skills and I'd learn something. And sometimes I'd learn, uh, a skill to take back to teaching. The guys and sometimes i'd learn a skill from the guys that i take to hunting um on my own and then as i you know retired and, and made that transition you know in my mind it was black and white and crystal clear uh but it but it has been a bit of a journey and so what i've what i've brought if anything to the hunting industry for my my decades of experience in, in the military was um trying to be what I call a student of the game or trying to dig in and understand the why behind things and truly, truly learn and understand how to apply a a skill or why something works to truly build a, a capability within a person. Right. And so if, if I understand, you know, if I understand how my body loses heat, then I, I can counter those forces to stay warm. Right. Mm. And so I understand that I, I, I taught that we, we, we did exercises to reinforce that point we'll say, right, where you're okay. cold, wet, and miserable. And, and it's like, all right, now you're going to figure it out for yourself. And so w- what I see, and it it's not, I'm not saying it's, it's wrong. It's kind of just, it's uh it's just kind of natural is. In the hunting world, when, when I, when I come into, when I came into the hunting world, I would see this extreme focus on, man, here's how to shoot your bow, man. Here's how to call the elk, man. Here's how to, you know, dope in your rifle and shoot a thousand yards or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And that was awesome. Or, Hey, like, here's the latest and greatest exercise program to get in the gym and like be a stud when you go into the mountains. And I'm like, cool. But that person doesn't know how to dress themselves. They don't know how to feed themselves. They don't know how to run their stove. They don't know how to navigate, and so it's like all those kind of uh, accessory skills are are useless if you can't uh, put yourself in the environment and then live there and and stay there in in you know with some kind of uh, with some kind of comfort, right? So, as an example. You can have the greatest gear ever, and you could be the best shot, and you could bugle as good as Corey Jacobson, and you could have Onyx on your phone, and you come out to Montana, and the altitude's going to kick your ass, and then because you haven't hiked enough, three miles in, your feet are going to be blistered, and then you're not going to know where to get water, or you're going to get water, but you're not going to know how to filter it or purify it, so then you're going to have the shits. And then you're going to have altitude sickness is going to push you out of the mountains and you're never going to be able to apply the skills that you spent so much time and effort and money on. Right. And so I call them somewhat of the intangibles or the care and feeding of the hunter where it's like, man, there's so much more to this. And that's the fun part to me because those are all skills that while we're shooting our bow. While we're in the gym, right, while we're buying the gear, we can go and train. You could go train in Minnesota, right? I could go train in Ohio and build those skills to now they all come together. And now when I go into the mountains in Montana or Colorado or Wyoming or wherever I choose to go, I have a better understanding of, you know, how to live in the environment to give myself the best possible chance of applying those kind of cooler high speed skills right of shooting of calling uh you know of loading up that pack with elk meat um and and hauling it out of the mountains but without that you're really your chances of success go go even uh farther down um than they already would be just kind of like coming out the public land with with a bow in your hand trying to find a big bull yeah we
2: were talking there's certain You know, things about hunting culture that have really romanticized the backcountry hunting. And rightly so. It's amazing. But those, like you kind of mentioned, those are some of, you know, maybe the aspects of preparing for a a mountain hunt that have been romanticized, you know, shooting the bow, buying new gear, and, you know, putting 200 pounds on a pack frame to show that you're ready to pack a bowl out. And, And there's aspects, like you said, that no one ever thinks about. Like, have you thought about how you would start a fire if it's raining? a lot of a lot of hunters can start a fire when everything's perfect. You got nice dry wood. It's not windy. It's not raining. You can, you know, most people can get it done. What are you going to do but if it not, rains?
1: But that's not when you need a fire. Exactly,
2: exactly. You it's want the fire want it. when it's dark and cold, and you're wet and 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 shivering, and you can't get back to camp.
1: Cor- correct, right? So uh, that that's where the knowledge from storms comes from. Is is knowledge acquired through difficult times? Right? Knowledge acquired from myself from failure, a lot of failure, right? A lot of trial and error, a lot of doing it, but barely getting by or getting by on luck, right? And then not being satisfied by that and coming back and going, all right, you know, I know now that there's conditions, there's certain conditions, I'm not gonna be able to build a fire. Well, that, that insight alone could potentially save your life, right, because right. instead of stopping to try to build a fire with this false illusion, I'm like, damn, I just got to put my puffy jacket on and my rain gear and start hiking back to camp or the truck or whatever the case may be, or get under a tree and seek shelter because i it's just not going to work, right? I'm going to expend more energy than I have to not achieve the objective. And so, uh, yeah, so there, there, there's a lot there, but um that that's 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 but but those are things we can train in the off season mm-hmm. right those are things we, we could train right now uh i taught a, i taught a course for some folks you know it was like just kind of a refresher for some but for some they'd never done it um a fire class for sitka you know a couple of weeks ago and it was kind of a cold damp you know saturday morning and and uh, it's like hey we're going to we're going to figure this out you know um cuz to train in what i would call permissive conditions all the time doesn't it doesn't really show you your true capability. It's like going and shooting your rifle or your bow in calm conditions or off a bench or only standing on a flat range isn't going to really prepare you for when the bull walks below you at 20 yards deep down in this hellhole and it's a 30 degree down angle and you have to figure out your arrow trajectory through brush. Like that's not the time to figure it out. The time to figure it out is with your buddies shooting in the quarry, right? Shooting at the ski hill, shooting at the you know, the, the local trailhead or wherever you can kind of figure it out. Right. And that's where it becomes this year round pursuit where you never really, you're always thinking about it, but you're always like doing something to like make yourself better. Like that's what we did in the military. That that's how we got so good. And that's where you get true capability. Um, and I think that that's what I've kind of helped hopefully bring to the hunting community is like, Hey man, there's more to this. And some of it isn't as quote cool or high speed as some other stuff, but it's like, but it's super, super vital to your success over time. Yeah. And you
2: said something on a Randy Newberg podcast that really Uh-oh. hit me. Like it, it it, was so like simple yet profound that I haven't thought about it. And it, it really stuck with me, but you said knowledge doesn't weigh anything.
1: Well, yeah. And, and I, and, so, so nobody's <laughs> ever said I've said anything profound. So I appreciate that, but but I got that from, I got that from a mentor of mine, right? And he told me, he's like, hey, bro. He's like, at the end of the day, knowledge doesn't weigh anything. All it takes is time to acquire. And that's where that statement alone, what that did to me. And even when I say it right now, all these years later, it gives me a calm or a patience. And, and what I mean by that is it's like, hey, man, calm down, take a deep breath. You're gonna get there, it's gonna take a little more time to achieve whatever level, cause we're always trying to Im- improve, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, enjoy the journey. But at the end of the day, when the, your back's against the wall, when the chips are down, when you're trying to figure it out, it's not necessarily, if ever in some regard, the whiz bang cool piece of gear, say some of which I make, right? That's gonna save you, it's the knowledge in your head. And none of that weighs a thing. Yeah. right and so you can take all that knowledge with you into the environment on that hunt whatever the case may be and figure out how to apply it with what you have kind of macgyver it right mm-hmm. and over time the more experience you gain and the more knowledge you have the more capable you become and the more deadly you be you can become in uh, in this case say the oak mountains right
2: yeah i was it was funny because i was i listened to that episode on a way back from a work trip Big conference and I had a a friend that lives in a different city, but we work for the same company. And he was talking about doing this backpack trip with his family. And he was weighing every single piece of gear to make sure that they had a pack that his wife could handle and all this stuff. And he's a great outdoorsman. But it was funny because I heard you say that like five hours after me and him were looking at his list. And it's like, he's like, yeah, it's going to be like 60 pounds for this backpacking trip. And I'm like, that seems kind of heavy for a three day trip. And, you know, we were looking through it. And then you said, yeah, knowledge doesn't weigh anything. (laughs) And it just, I laughed because it's so true. And I had never really thought about it that way, but you know, the more, you know, maybe the less you need to carry, you don't have to plan for every unknown because there's less unknowns.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think there's kind of a trajectory, um, for all of us and, and kind of our journey, right. And into this, it, it just into the outdoors. And I think that, you know, we all start, I'll certainly speak for myself here. I don't have a lot of knowledge. I've got a ton of enthusiasm. I try to buy gear and equipment as a crutch to shore up my lack of experience, right? And some of my, my doubt and, and some of the unknown. And so I go in and I'm, and I'm overburdening myself with gear, right? Because I got to have this to solve this problem. I got to have that to solve that problem. That is completely natural. That's where I started. Right. And then as you get experience, and you start you know, cutting the toothbrush in half and, and all this stuff and go, well, I've never used this before. I, I don't really need it. Now you get to a point where, uh, which I think is the most dangerous part of the journey, is where you get to the point where we're cutting every single thing and shaving every ounce and weighing everything and like scrutinizing an ounce here and an ounce there. And if something does happen, You probably don't have enough experience to really get through with the limited resources you have, but you're not really smart enough yet to know that or understand it. And then eventually you get to a point where you kind of land in between there, right? Where you're like, I, now I've got knowledge, now I've got experience, now I've got confidence. And I know that to bring just so minimal amount of gear is really potentially risking my success or potentially my safety. And if I choose to go there, that's a conscious effort where before it necessarily wasn't. But I also don't need all this gear here to burden myself with the 60 pound pack and have to have everything, you know, do every specific thing. I can land here somewhere in the middle, right? Which is a a moderate weight. But with this vast amount of knowledge where I'm like, oh, you know what? I became separated from my pack. I can still figure it out. Oh, my buddy's lost. I can figure it out. Oh, we got a bull down and we now had to sit on it uh, and wait till morning. Yeah, we can figure that out. Right. Yeah. And I think that's where we'll all eventually end up. But there's kind of an extreme in the middle before we get there. And, um, you know, and everybody's got their own personal style and and their, their own uh, kind of assessment of risk. And, you know, sometimes depending even on my partners, right. Or, or an environment that I'm not as familiar with or haven't been in for a long amount of time, uh, you know, when I start out in the winter on my trips, I probably carry a little bit more than I do by the end of the winter when I've been out there a little bit and and kind of gotten, you know, kind of back in the groove, so to speak.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, but, but ultimately the knowledge doesn't really cost anything, but our time, I mean, there's maybe a little bit of money involved, but. At the end of the day, it weighs nothing, and that's when that's when you truly like feel confident. Like, man, I can go out there, I can figure this out. Uh, you know, if this happens or that happens, barring something just like act of God kind of thing, um, it's going to be okay. You know, and we're going to have a great time. Hopefully, find our target animal and at least walk out of here with a smile on our face. Now, it's not going to. You're not going to have a smile on your face when you walk out. You'll have a smile on your face two weeks later <laughs> when your body heals up but yeah
2: yeah it i maybe i we haven't shot bulls in terrible spots yet but i, I man i love packing one out and it's i'm a big guy i'm 62 somewhere between 250 and 270 depending on the year so you throw a raghorn back quarter on my pack and it's a it's a smaller percentage of you know body weight addition than sure. yeah, like yeah. a small guy and so it feels really good and man there's just something about that where you know you know that weight is the is like the price you pay for a memory in a way. Um,
1: so I, I like to it. say those are I like to say those are good problems to have, Brian. When yeah. you're sitting there bitching about how to get your elk out of the field, we should all take a step back and go, wait a second. We're bitching about we killed an elk and now we got to figure out how to get out of the field. Those are good problems. Like, yeah, those are good problems.
2: Those are great problems you know? to have. That's the problem you planned for. That's the whole reason. That's-
1: <laughs> That's the whole, the whole point you, of
2: being there. Yeah, the whole reason we drove across the country was to have this problem. Um, <laughs> on the flip side, you know, last fall we had a different problem. We got back to our ranger late. It was the same night we got into that big herd I told you about before we started recording and had a great evening. But we're on the other side of this ridge at nightfall, so we get back. It's dark, and the road, the road that we are taking with the ranger, I think – would um I don't think Polaris would allow their employees to do vehicle testing on that road. I don't think HR would allow it. It was that bad. Wow. It was it was terrible. It's the worst road we've ever taken. If it starts to rain at all, it's a it's a non-starter because it's so steep. There's nothing stopping. There's not enough traction. Well, we're coming down it. We got a flat tire. Bad flat, oh, like geez. not a slow leak, but a, a, you know this. The rubber would eventually get ripped off the rim. And so we park it and we're like, well, great. You know, we don't really have all the tools we need to fix it here. I don't really want to pack a tire out, but it's just me and my brother on this trip with one, you know, UTV. So we're not we don't have a ton of options. And then we look up and a thunderstorm is rolling over the mountain at this at this moment in time, and so it's like, "Oh my gosh. What luck, right?" And so now we're faced with this decision, do we follow the roads back to the cabin, which is like, three times as long, but it's a guaranteed path. Or, you know, I start looking at my phone, and I'm like, hey, man, I think we can cut this corner, we'll save two river crossings, but we're going to drop off the face of this ridge in the dark on a, it's, it is steep, I think we can do it, you know, based on everything we've done, I'm pretty sure we can do it, but it will be steep, and it will be new. And so we're like, well, him and Han, we we'll are looking at the thunderstorm, we're like, let's, let's give it a try. So, Luckily, we had, you know, flash covers, right? You got, we got the, the Sika, just the, the lightest weight flash rain cover and then the pack covers. We threw those on quick and just started bombing off the mountain. Sure enough, we I mean, we got back. You mean, to cut a third of your travels off, to have that confidence to say, no, we can do this in the dark. We can go this way. Like we were looking at our map or using the tools, contours, 3D mapping to, you know, that's the kind of knowledge where you have it. Like you said, it brings confidence in what you can do and what you can't do. Now, if we looked at that and we saw a rock cliff with really tight contours, we're like, yeah, I don't think that's a great new path to cut in the middle of the night.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's an awesome story. So you had to go back the next day and fix a flat on that steep hill or what?
2: Yeah, we had to, we found, well, you might, well, you probably wouldn't know him, but we met a guy named Dwayne Sessions, who who is, um, he was a guide and he was hunting and he's he's pretty good friends with like Brian Call and those guys. And he and his brother had two four-wheelers. And so we, we asked oh, him if nice. we could, hey, can we borrow a four-wheeler? And and sure enough, they were great people and allowed us to basically borrow a four-wheeler for a day because we had to go up and get it. And then we had to go to town and fix it. And then we had to go up and replace it. So that took a day out of hunting, which is a real bummer because it was the right day next day after we got into that big herd. And you had to you know leave the Elk alone <laughs> and go fix some stuff at camp. Yeah. So. Yeah. Such is life. Awesome. Great yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah yeah in the end i mean we we didn't get any issues with the thunderstorm obviously no one got injured on the way out in the dark i mean those are the big things that matter right losing a day of hunting is neither really here nor there at the end of a lifetime
1: yeah i think you know it's again to each his own but i you know to me it's like you, you got to come home safe like that's kind of non-negotiable yeah um and kind of what you do in between to, to make that happen is you know c- c- kind of where the you know the question marks lie mm-hmm. um but yeah it you know but like you said the confidence you've got now uh one you I mean you clearly knew how to read a map and read contour lines which is important like those are important things right because if you didn't or you don't and you're just looking at aerial imagery satellite imagery uh you know and i've talked to guys Some of which are experienced and weren't running contour lines like they get themselves into some real messes, you know, and it can happen even if you are looking at contour lines, but the chances of it happening, if you don't understand how to read maps like it just becomes exponential.
2: Yeah, and it's a skill that that a lot of people like where I live and all of our farms here in Minnesota I don't know if we've got a combined foot of elevation change on all of our acres, <laughs> right? I mean, it is flat. And uh, and so, likewise, every article you read about how to hunt whitetails, they always say find a ridge, find a draw. Well, that's out. <laughs> uh, next option. Uh-huh. And so it's not a skill you grow up learning or using. There is no contour. Does The, the fastest route is A to B. You know, draw a line, walk that right, direction. Right. And that's not true in the mountains, right? I mean, no, it's usually the opposite. Usually you got to go around something before you're done. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and that's kind of one thing I wanted to maybe pivot towards. A lot of your your skills and your, your classes, like the outdoor class, right, backcountry mission planning, and and knowledge from storms. I think it's applicable to the entire range of experience levels. Um, for the for the Western rookie, right, for someone that is from our like my hometown of or home state of Minnesota, or someone that's from the Midwest that wants to go out and do their first Western hunt probably not going to do a like a a backpack backcountry hunt right that's really not where most of us begin we usually begin with some sort of a base camp and a day hunt right but doesn't mean that you you don't need any knowledge or skills right there's still a lot of things that apply if if you were going to speak to that hunter what were what would be like a some of the things you would want to make sure that they have in their you know in their knowledge toolbox just for like the day hunt
1: yeah. So the first thing I'm going to say, I'm going to give you a secret, and this is a big one. I'm not. I'm not BSing you. Uh, the vast majority of guys that I know, some of which anybody probably on your show would know name wise, that are highly successful every year, are not backpack elk hunting. Right. Okay. It's it's not. Often, it's not the default style and it's not often the best method, especially if you are coming out from somewhere and you're going to a place unknown because you have to cover a lot of ground to find elk and to be able to hunt those elk. Mm -hmm. And if you spend an entire day and a hell of a lot of energy. And emotionally deplete yourself to get eight miles in, right? Or six miles in or ten miles in someplace. And then find there's no elk there. It's one gonna demoralize you, or two, you find an outfitter or other hunters, mm-hmm. and you're like, Well, shit, what do we do now? And then you're gonna spend three days because you're 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 stubborn trying to figure it out. Then you're going to realize you're not going to, there's no elk here. And then you're going to hike a day out and you've just killed five days of your hunt and you haven't, you've covered one small portion yeah. of your probably entire hunt plan. Whereas I would say go find the elk, stay mobile, have lots of areas to, you know, you can go in and cover a couple miles easy, right? Oh, the yeah. In a day, come back to a fixed camp and then say, okay, are, you know, are we good or not? Are there elk here? Are there too many people Are there not enough people? Do we stay a couple of days? we we're managing our energy, right? That's probably a better course of action to at least start. Yeah. And then you're like, you know what, this is it. We're punching in with a spike camp and we're going to live four miles off the road. And, and we're going to live there for three days and we're going to, we're going to see, we're going to give it our best shot to make this happen. Cause this is the area now. Yeah. Um, to do any of that, I think it's critical, and Backcountry Mission Planning talks about this, and this is based on a lot of experience, not just with myself, but but others, is you need to factor in a few things, and you need to figure out, um, first, Google Earth is, is an awesome tool, but nothing is the same when you get there as it looks on Google Earth, right? And so Mark Livesey, has these awesome e-scouting courses where he talks a lot about that. But, um, the reality is you can only cover a small portion of a hunt area on foot in any given amount of time. And so we tend to get a little overzealous, kind of like when we go to the buffet, right? And we start putting more and more on our plate. I can eat this. I can eat this. I can eat this. It doesn't really take any effort until you get there. Um, and so I would say, you know, be realistic understand what the altitude is in the area mm-hmm. because altitude is going to be a huge thing right and Cal- uh, Colorado people get in trouble all the time every year to include very experienced people and friends where they go there and they're like oh i'm coming from to your you know i'm coming from minnesota yeah there's you know i'm 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 hiking bleachers at the stadium right and it's uh, 300 feet above sea level And I'm going to drive to this awesome trailhead I found that's got everything elk need. It's at 8,500 feet. And you get out and you've been doing your, you know, mountain tough fitness, which is an incredible program. And you throw the pack on your back and you realize that a mile down the trail, you've kicked your own ass. And you can't realize why you're feeling poor, why you can't breathe, why why your back aches. And it's because you're hiking up a hill longer than you've ever hiked uphill. In your training, you're at an altitude that takes a while for your body to acclimatize to, and you just can't physically move as fast or as efficient as you did when you were just flying over all of it on Google Earth, right? So you have to figure out your altitude. And then the next thing you need to do is you need to understand how to read topographic lines or contour lines on a a topographic map. Right. So you can go, okay, you know what? This is a, we can hike in. Uh, on a, on a, you know, a moderate grade or a moderate trail, and you know, I told this to a friend the other, the other year. He's like, "Well, we want to get to a place here five miles in," and I said, "Awesome." I, he says, "But we, we just can't ever do it. Like, it's just so tough to do it." And I said, "Have you ever considered just taking two days to do it, <laughs> and kind of hunt, and kind of hunting your way there, and go, hey, you know what? Let's go in two miles or two and a half miles, and we'll stop at a good water source." And we'll set up camp and maybe hunt there. And then maybe the next morning, see if we hear any bugles. And then we'll pack up and 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 get to where we want to ultimately get, but maybe take two days to do it. And then you're acclimatizing and you're breaking that, that up because we always overestimate how quickly we can hike over terrain, especially if we haven't done it before, right? Yeah. So I like to say just for planning purposes, if you're on a trail, like no more than than, uh, than two miles an hour. Like yeah, no more. That's right. And, and, and honestly, off trail, it's like 1k an hour. I, I normally talk in kilometers. So two, 2k an hour on trail, 1k an hour off. So that's a thousand meters off trail and a, and 2000 meters on trail. And And you want to make sure that if you do that for planning, you're like, oh, you know what, it's going to take us eight hours to get there. How about we just stop at four hours, and hunt. wherever we may be, at a good water source, and and hunt? Because you may be hiking past. This happens to me. I'm 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 not the smartest guy all the time either, right? You may be h- hiking past some amazing hunting opportunities that everybody else hiked past too. Yeah. Because everybody feels like you're not a cool guy if you don't get at least past the three mile mark. And it's like, well, what about the two mile mark? What about the four mile mark? Right? Um, and, and that way you're able to pace yourself, which I think is hugely important is pacing yourself with your energy expenditure. Again, especially if you don't live at altitude, if you don't live in steep terrain, if you haven't had a pack on your back, right. Um, all those things factor in. And so it's like, again, the patience part of it, be patient, take it as it comes. Uh, be willing to modify your plan. Yeah. And not be soul focused like I am oftentimes. It's like, nope, got to get there. Got to get there. Got to get there. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm. this is my head. I'm talking to the, to myself in my head. I'm like, hey, bro, calm down. Settle out. Like, it's okay. There's no time clock out here. There's no rules. It's all up to us. Like, just take it as it comes and figure it out. And when we do that, and we're not looking at this as a sporting event, But we're looking at this is this amazing of uh you know uh 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 opportunity to be in nature like that's when we slow down and go oh man i you know what i just saw some fresh elk sign you know what i we just walked by a rub like maybe this is a good area to, to 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 just camp out downwind and and see if we hear anything tonight all that comes and so uh understand your altitude understand your rates of movement and understand how to read and and make sure you have contour lines on whatever map it is probably digital right yeah and and just realize what they mean so you're not putting yourself in steep terrain or you're not saying oh we're going to start at this trailhead and it's like straight up for four thousand feet it's just probably not going to work out very well speaking from experience
2: yeah i could i could i could add my speaking from experience to that same thing it's it whether it works or not it's never fun Right. So right off the bat, it's never fun. It's never going to be fun. And most of the time it's not going to work. So it's just like a it's not a good bet. You know, it's it's a lot of the things that you do out there. It seems like you're making consecutive small bets on your success. Right. Is it going to be better for us to sleep here tonight under the stars because we're close to the elk, but we're not going to be as comfortable. We're probably going to be a little hungry, probably going to be a little chilled. Or is it going to be better for us to walk out, get back to base camp, have a good dinner, probably sleep a lot better, not be cold, and then we'll just wake up early and hike in again, right? I mean, those are all kinds of different decisions, and every situation will be different, but that's that's what I really think about a lot is, is this worth sleeping on the mountain for, or would it be better to just go back to camp, be comfortable, sleep well, and walk a little bit longer in the morning?
1: Yeah, and it, you're always weighing risk versus reward, right? So mm-hmm. sometimes it is worth yeah. sleeping out and and, and bivvying up, right? Uh, or, you know, bringing the bivvy sacks or a, a tent. But you also have to weigh, okay, well, what else am I going to bring? I'm going to bring the tent. I'm going to bring the stove. I'm going to bring the fuel. I'm going to bring more food. And, like, is that amount of weight I'm going to carry for the one night based on whatever experience you have, is that worth it? Or is it worth you know, the extra two miles, three miles round trip with a very light pack to go back to camp, do what you just said, and then be back here at first light. And, I, you know, I think people, we we tend to get real tunnel visioned on certain things based on, you know, what we see in, in, in print and digital media and stuff like that. It's like, oh, this is the only way to do it. And the reality is, man, outside of The state's rules and regulations, there are no rights and wrongs. It is completely and utterly up to you. And you have that freedom to do that, you know? And so like my friend who, uh, you know, I've been, I've been just slowly talking to over, over a course of years. It's like now what he does, he's coming from Ohio is he drives to his trailhead. I think it's at say eight ish thousand feet. He plans on when he gets there, he's hanging out, camping right there in the truck and hunting around the truck for a day. So the rest of that day, maybe the next morning, right? Yep. That helps him acclimatize and he hopefully, you know, if there's elk there, he sees them, but he doesn't want to walk past them. And then if he, if he wants to go five miles into that ridge, ultimately, he's like, okay, now I'm going to put my pack on and I'm not going to set my sights on getting to the five mile mark. If that happens fine, but you know what I'm totally fine with, and I've already identified a potential campsite with a water source where I'm going to stop at the two to three mile mark. And I'm going to camp there, which is a little higher in elevation. I'm going to, again, acclimatize to that higher elevation, not burn all my energy the first couple of days. Cause this is a, you know, maybe a week, 10, 10 day long hunt. I'm going to make sure that there's not elk here. Yeah. And, and maybe I, I, maybe I, maybe I choose to stay here three days because the opportunity is so good. And if not, you hunt the next morning and then you slowly push up the additional two, three miles to, to your, your ultimate camp. And then, and then you end up hunting there. Right. Um, and then you haven't just completely burned yourself out because it, it what, what, off what people often don't talk about, you know, Snyder's talked about this, I, I know, but very few people I've ever heard talk about this is kind of that you're pacing yourself and, and you're not just pacing yourself as far as like how quickly you can get there, but that's really tied to an energy expenditure. And it's like, how much gas do I have in the tank for a week of this or 10 days of this or even three days of this, right? And based on my food, my fitness, and you know my acclimatization and all this stuff, like how long can I do this and still be effective? And at the end of the day, remember, hopefully the, the goal is we've been talking elk hunting so let's just say to kill a bull right or to kill a buck is quite frankly once you do the real heavy work literally in figurative begins yeah and and now you got to get that animal out right and so you don't want to be completely so depleted that you just got nothing left and you're like hell i'm not going down there to kill that bull like i just don't have anything left in the tank and it's like you got we we need to like manage our energy expenditure to make sure that we can, we can do that. And I think by doing that, and again, I'm speaking, this is definitely something I have to tell myself every year when I slow down, when I calm down, when I take in more things, that's when I really start to get tuned into the environment and like, I'm not hopefully walking by, you know, opportunities and animals that I otherwise would have just had my head down and pushing right into that waypoint.
2: Yeah. I, I like what you said, and I like the way you said it with how long can I do this? Like, what do I have in the tank? And it, it, thinking back on a Colorado hunt, I went on alone because I got the points I talked to you about. I got some extra points because Colorado made a mistake. Hopefully there's a statute of limitations on, on that. Um, so I got a tag, and I didn't have anyone to go with because I was the only one with five points. So I went by myself. It was a second rifle tag. And I, it was at like 11,000, 12,000 feet.
1: Wow. So that's high, man. That's really up there. I
2: didn't feel like it was high. I knew, I mean, I knew what the number meant, right? I knew I mean like 14ers is a thing that people try to climb yeah. to and I'm not that far away from it. Um yeah. but the ba- the valley floor was so high it didn't seem like it was a huge mountain. But that doesn't matter for altitude sickness. And right. so I hunted day 1 or scouting day 1 couldn't hunt Saw a great herd right where I thought I would want to be, so good. I found elk. I mean, that, I was like, I'm doing this alone in a new state, in a new unit, and, and this is, you know, one of my only October elk hunts I've ever done. And so I found elk, great. First full day hunting, had high expectations, weather was really hot and windy, nothing happened, but then a, a storm blew in. A snowstorm, And so I made the decision to pull camp, get out of the mountain, go down to the, you know, the valley floor, down to town, and just camp in the truck at the base of the mountain because who knows, right? They were calling for 18 inches of snow in the valley. Who knows Um, what it's going to be up here? So I slept and hunted out of my truck, basically scouted out of my truck, you know, slept in the back seat for a few days. Finally, things started to clear up. roads started opening up. I get back up in to where I wanted to be, and I glassed a, a giant herd. Up on top, at, at that 12, 12, five, There was like 200 elk in this herd I couldn't tell for sure Because I was, I was actually driving out of the unit Into the next mountain And then glassing back at my mountaintop And it was just a huge herd And so I got in there I scouted them About noon, got back up, started hiking in Well Then I started realizing I have problems There's a, I, have a, I have a few Stacked up problems going on right now First of all, it's high right and I've never really had what I think is altitude sickness so I was going to ask you if that's kind of like everyone seems to do it different and and react differently because I I mean I definitely noticed I get tired faster I run out of oxygen faster but then you just take more breaks I've never had the like I don't know systemic sickness issues like stomach and everything just nothing feels good but I'm getting tired and I'm like dude I'm making it like 50 yards uphill every time before I need a break. And there's 12 inches of snow that I'm post-holing through, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's just little things start oh, yeah. adding up and they add up.
1: It's a lot of energy expenditure. Yep.
2: And, and then my legs are starting to like cramp. The back of my knees are starting to cramp. And I'm like, man, that's not good. So I'm stretching and you know, they'll make it a little ways and I cramp up again. Well, then it hits me like, dude, you have not been eating enough. Like these last three days you've had like maybe a thousand calories a day. And you're probably not drinking enough water, right? That's where the cramps are coming in. That's where some of the exhaustion's coming in. Well, I get it, it's a, it was going to be 1,000 feet of elevation gain over a mile to get to the ridge, and then about two miles down the ridge at equal elevation. So I'm thinking, these are, these are things I can do. You know, I've done this before. That's, that's nothing about this is crazy yet. But by the time I got up there, I was in such a tough shape. I'm like, I can see the elk with my naked eye. And I think I'm going to walk away from them because I don't know if I shoot this elk, I don't know how I'm going to get it off this mountain in my condition with only two days left of this hunt. I just don't see this working out in my favor. I mean, I thought of everything. I thought about going to town and buying an otter sled and sliding it down the mountain or building a travoy or, I mean, I've thought of all of these options and it, none of them were looking good. <laughs> and so I, I backed away from the elk. I went down and said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a hotel tonight. The town's not that far away. I'm going to get some good food. I'm going to sleep good. I'm going to come back tomorrow rested and and better, you know, better prepared. Well, sure enough, with my luck, overnight, that herd moved about two and a half miles closer to the road. And then in the morning, so there was another group on them. They got within 200 yards on their stock. I don't know what happened. No shots were fired. There was a really nice bull in that group. I was set up, like, in a situation where they beat me, so I was going to let them do their thing. But if they shoot, this herd could run by me. And so that's where I'm going to set up. Herd moves off, herd bumps off. They must have spooked. Well, I saw where they went, and I'm like, all right, I'm just going to go get some lunch. I'm going to make sure I'm back in position for where these, the, they went into a patch of black timber. Like, the, they didn't go over the next rise. This is a shale face on one side and a road on the other. I would have seen them leave. So sure enough, I get back set up. Beautiful day, herd feeds out at, in the evening, I get set up on a raghorn, last light, and as I'm about to touch off on a raghorn, out of the corner of my scope, I see a really big third, and I go, that's a bigger elk, and so I look at it, and sure enough, it was the, the her, I don't know, herd bull, it was a, a 6 by 7 in the 280 range. And that's yeah. the elk I got. And so it's it's just funny because a lot of the things you just talked about kind of all stacked up, and I made the decision to not go after them. Turns out it was the greatest decision ever because now I shot my elk 700 yards off a road, downhill <laughs> to the road, <laughs> and I even found yeah. an old gold mining trail that I could drive my truck up. So I had to sh- shuttle the quarters about 200 yards, and I had them loaded wow. up 7 a.m. the next morning.
1: That's an awesome story, dude. Awesome story.
2: Yeah, it, but it, it really shows, like, there's – like, all the things you talk about are very real. I've experienced them. Everyone's going to experience them, and they can change so fast. They can, yeah. you can, in three days, you can go from peak energy, coming off of a Wyoming deer hunt, I'm in shape, I got everything dialed in. Three days, it all falls apart. You quit eating, you get up a higher elevation, you don't drink enough water, you're not sleeping good because you're in the backseat of your truck, and the wheels yep. just fall off. You take a day off, you rest, you recover, get some food, and then it just so happened I lucked out and the elk got closer to me but the whole thing changed and I mean the the emotional roller coaster on that hunt you know maxed out on both ends in the span of about 24 hours
1: yeah that so that's I mean really really good decision making because you know who knows what would have happened if you would have decided to push out that ridge two miles right and and shoot a bull like who knows what would have happened right but to have that patience and to go you know what there's no like there's no time clock, you know. Obviously, the season has a, has a certain time frame, but you know, I'm not in the best shape right now. Let me go recover, come back here, and then look how it worked out. That's that's an awesome story.
2: Yeah, and it would have been, it still would have been the right decision, obviously, if I didn't have that next day and the and and get the shot opportunity because, like, it could have yeah. gone south so fast. Like, you, and and that's yeah. one of the things where I think it's like it's like it's okay to. It's okay to walk away from an elk if you don't feel like you can do it, and and for people to know that, like you don't, not everyone's going to be the Cameron Hayneses of the world that that can make what seems like almost any situation work, right? Like it's yeah, okay well, to the, be where meet yourself where you are in your own journey, really.
1: Yeah, the the, the vast majority of us aren't right, <laughs> but you know, when when you you know when you when you study people, they. You know get in trouble or get in accidents uh, look at what the SAR groups are doing to recover people like almost inevitably again taking out of the equation like a random lightning strike or a bear attack like we normally are the ones that are be- making ourselves that statistic right mm-hmm. we make one poor decision and then we make another poor decision and then you know we start getting run down, or you know we're not comfortable, say, bivvying up overnight, because uh, either we don't have the capability or the knowledge. You're like, man, I got to get this done. I got to get this done now. And we make a third poor decision, and then inevitably things will start to, you know, the wheels will start to come off the bus. And you know, not not it doesn't always end in tragedy, but but it it certainly could, right? And we are the ones that, or the group, you know, are the ones that have continued to push that agenda and make poor decision after poor decision. And when you're not eating right and your mind's not working properly and you're not making those right decisions, then that's when things start, uh, you know, start to happen. And it's such a difficult thing to, you know, like the discipline you had to walk away from those elk, like that had to be that, like, uh, that's applaudable because that's, that's insane discipline to go, but I know that I, I know that I can't get this done right now and i have the opportunity to come back and i'd be better served to do that like more people probably need to do that to include me sometimes to be honest with you
2: well i will tell you it sure didn't feel applaudable in the moment it really felt no, like never a failure at, you know yeah at, and i'm sure everyone's yeah. felt that before but it's like man yeah. i just yeah it's hard it was a tough pill to swallow for sure and it didn't help my mood at all for the rest of that <laughs> day <laughs> <laughs> that's for certain um but yeah you're right you know it it seems like when you hear a story and people that when they recant the story or, or they tell it i think of the meat eaters uh meat pole story have you heard the their story of where they got that bear encounter in i think it was a fognac where they oh
1: yeah fognac yeah yeah
2: the they had the meat pole or the meat tree and uh you hear them talking like that was mistake number one, and then they talking this was mistake number two, and then this was mistake number three, and that's when the bear showed up. You know, it's like yep. you said, it's usually a multiple things happen in a row to lead you to that risky scenario.
1: Yeah, yeah, rarely is it one. You know, rarely is it one poor decision. But yeah, well, I've been to a fog neck a whole bunch of times, and it's not a question of if, but when you're going to run into a bear. And then at that point, it's like you know how close or you know, what's the encounter going to look like, but I mean, that place is loaded with them.
2: Yeah. It would be fun to go. And
1: they're aggressive.
2: It would be fun to go, but I'd want to go with the right people. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm yeah. not that person. <laughs> <So>.
1: <laughs> and it could be a great, I mean, it's a great adventure and a great hunt. Uh, were they hunting elk or blacktail? Yeah, they were
2: hunting. Uh, it was an elk. They shot, yeah. I think they were doing a rifle elk hunt. And yep. they had six people, and they, it, it, luckily no one got hurt. But there was a, you know, pretty some pretty wild stories. Um, which that I wanted to I wanted to end with maybe one final question for you, and it, and it, I think it fits in because we kind of we started drifting into this this area of like when things go wrong. And so, what would you say is a are the requirements of of a you know the essential requirements for an emergency kit? Whether someone is doing the day hunt with a base camp or they're planning to sleep on the mountain and do some version of a backpack hunt. What would you say for someone that's new that maybe hasn't thought through all of these scenarios or had all of these things happen to them? What would be like a way to maybe get some free knowledge without having to pay the price for it on things you absolutely need to have in your emergency kit?
1: Yeah, man, you asked some really awesome questions. And the reason I'm smiling is because I've been, I've been providing seminars this winter, um, three, several different places, three, uh, wild sheep, wild sheep convention, Pope and young convention. And then I've done some out of the the Sitka Depot store here in Bozeman, but it's essentially around, you know, the title is essentially like mountain survival, but, okay. um, it's far more than that, but to, so it's, it's, it's front of mind and I'm actually going to record a video, um, probably Friday on this and post it to my Instagram, but. Uh, yeah, it's it's an awesome question and something that I think is is needs to be talked about more. Um, I think there's some definitely foundational points to it, and then there's some nuance where people can uh, there's no right or wrong, right? And for some of this. It really comes down to personal preference, risk mitigation, or risk tolerance and and experience, right? Um, but but generally speaking, it doesn't matter if I'm going out for the day. Or i'm going out for the week or i'm flying in for two weeks on some remote trip um, i am always bringing rain gear and a puffy jacket and so those that may not know what a puffy jacket is it's a those lofted jackets and there's all different kinds right Um, and it's considered static insulation and so the rain gear is obvious it blocks wind it keeps you dry right so at a minimum if you had to put that on and crawl under a rock. It would keep you dry and block wind. And so, if you're dry and there's wind not on you, you're going to stay warmer. And then, what the puffy jacket does, is that loft traps your body heat radiating away from you, gets trapped in that in that loft, and that keeps you warm, right? So when you're stop glassing or in camp or, uh, you know, uh, even sleeping uh at at night in your sleeping bag like you can wear a puffy jacket to help keep you warm that's the intent of it and so with the puffy jacket and rain gear if i do get benighted because you and i are trying to get back to camp we killed a mule deer and we got stuck in some steep cliffy area yeah um and the best course of action is to sit down and just wait till daylight and not push the issue um if we have those things we're more inclined to sit down and ride the night out and not Understand, we're not going to die, right? But if you don't have those, you're like, no, no, it's a desperate situation. We got to do this, and that's when I trip and fall and break my break my ankle, right? Yeah. Um. So th- those are the first two things. Um. So th- there's kind of like six cardinal rules I have. Okay. So one is always bring a puffy jacket and some rain gear.
2: I I uh, feel naked anymore without my Kelvin in my pack for how light it is. I I just yeah. I feel like I really am like naked on the mountain if I don't have those things in my pack, no matter what the weather calls for.
1: Um, I I, I agree with you, right? And and there's like it's not worth talking about the the few times I I I'm, I might not bring the whole thing, but I'm always 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 rain gear, rain jacket, puffy jacket, rain pants. Okay. Um, so that that's the first one. The second one is to make sure you either stay dry or dry out every chance you get. And so this kind of ties back to some clothing. Uh, I, You know, you and I hike to the top of a ridge because we're chasing the sunrise to get to the top to glass mule deer when they're moving around before they get in their beds for the day, right? Mm-hmm. And so we go too hard, we go too fast and we sweat out our, our base layers, right? We sweat out our clothing. Um, when we get up there, what do I want to do? First thing I want to do is put that puffy jacket on. It's going to keep trap my body heat so we don't get cold. And the other thing it's going to do is if you have a synthetic or wool base layer, it's going to dry that base layer out. Right. When I get back to my tent at night, this often happened in Alaska where you're damp, even if you're moving around in rain gear, you sweat out the rain gear. Uh, I want to make sure that I'm drying myself out. Right. So there's, there's ways to do it. I, I don't bring extra clothing. Some people may choose to, but you need at 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 some point you need to dry even the wet layer out. So you want to dry out and stay as dry as possible because that that way you stay warmer and more engaged. Um, The next one is you want to have the ability to make some type of shelter. Again, going out for the day or going out for a week, you can still twist your ankle, break your leg, whatever the case may be, right? And even though you got an inreach and you're like, hey, bro. Like, come get me. Your buddy's like, oh, dude, I got to get off work. I got to feed the dog. I got to, you know, fix the flat tire on the ATV and I'll be there in 24 hours. It's like, oh, okay. Well, I got a puffy jacket. I got red gear. I can hang out and I can make a shelter to protect myself. Shelter is the number one survival priority. You want to seek shelter. Okay. We do that first with clothing. And then second, we want to build some type of shelter. So obviously, if you have your pack on your back in a tent, that's obvious. You may have a tarp. Uh, You may have an emergency space blanket, right? But you also may just have a knife and some parachute cord. And with that, in the environment, you're in, you're like, oh, well, if I have that, I can build an A-frame. I can build a lean-to. I can build some type of shelter to get out of the elements with my clothing on and ride the storm out until my buddies come get me out of here. Okay. So the ability to make shelter. So by no means am I saying we have to carry a lot of stuff. And this is where experience And gear kind of meet, right? Um, The next one is mentally, psychologically, be prepared to spend 24 hours away from camp or your truck or your house or whatever the case may be. So, you know, hey, I. I told my wife I'd be back in eight hours. And if I wasn't back in eight hours to call the cops. Right. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, I just killed the bull right at last light, and now I'm going to be 14 hours late. Now I'm trying to rush and do things I probably shouldn't to cut corners. Right. And it's like, nope, I'm going to be gone 24 hours. If I'm not back in 24 hours, then call the cops or search and rescue. But what also that does is that psychologically prepares you for when we do get stuck in the rocks going, Hey bro, we'll just sit down. We're in no rush we'll get out of here in the morning, right? We'll get out of here. We'll get your awesome deer back to the truck. We'll get the, we'll get to town, have breakfast instead of cheeseburgers, right? Whatever the case may be, Yeah. but that makes you slow down and help make good decisions. Um, the next one is I like to say, always try to improve your position. I'll get back to the survival kit here in a minute. You always want to try to improve your position. So what I mean by that is, uh, you know, we're sitting there on a glassy knob and the wind shifts and it starts to rain and we're exposed to the elements and we're just sitting there getting smacked in the face with rain and snow, either move your glassing spot or set up a tarp to protect yourself, right? Uh, you set up a tent right at last light, you wake up the next morning, you realize it's in a cold sump or there's water nearby and it's gonna flood your tent. You wanna improve your position and and, and move that. Or, uh, you know, you, you, you get wet, uh, cause you fall in a Creek crossing a log and you're like, uh Oh, like it's cold. What am I going to do? And this is where the survival kit comes in and you're like, you know what? I'm going to improve my position by just putting on my rain gear and puffy jacket and walking towards the trailhead, which is only one more mile away. I'm going to build up my body heat, keep my cognitive function and get there. And an hour from now I'll be in the truck and I can sort my, my stuff out. Right. So yep. always trying to improve your position. And, and the last one, and I'm not as good at this one, and you talked about it already, not trying not to get as nutritionally and physically depleted and put yourself in such a metaphorical black hole that if something were to happen, you could not manage yourself. Mm -hmm. So you went up on that hike, you ended up going down that Ridge, you killed that bull that bull slid off the steep slope you went off the steep slope after it an avalanche occurred trapped you up to your waist and now you're like damn i am so depleted i can't dig myself out i can't hike back to the top of the hill i have to go down the hill into a into a hell hole to get out the drain it like what am i going to do i'm not thinking clear i'm i'm totally fried and i did it to myself right i like to say we kick we like to kick our own ass yeah and so when you're building a survival kit, I really don't like the term survival kit. I like the term contingency kit. I like the term possibles pouch from the mountain men. Okay. And what it is, is it's, it supplements what you already have. So as an example, if I've got, if I've got a signal panel or a strobe light or a whistle or a compass with a, with a mirror in my optics harness, I don't necessarily need to carry an additional signaling device in my survival kit. I could, I don't have to, Okay. but if I don't have it here, I want to have it there. Cause if I do break my leg, aircraft flies over, I can, I can flash the, the signal panel or I can blow on a whistle if a outfitter's hiking past, you know, within a couple hundred yards and I can't whistle cause my mouth's dry. Right. But the ability to signal, I think is huge, but you don't want to be redundant. So I think the survival kit should have the ability to signal. Okay. It should have the ability to make a fire. So that's generally a knife. So you can procure some wood and some tinder, right? Some prefabricated tinder. Um, But again, if I have the knife on my hip, I don't need a second knife in my survival kit. This is a kit that I want to work out of. Like it's a tool bag, right? I want to work out of it. Um, So uh, signaling, fire. We talked about shelter. So that could be just some paracord it could be a space blanket, it could be a tarp, something, anything like that, right? But the ability to do that, and that changes by environment, Um, you want to have the ability to uh, acquire and purify some drinking water. So let's say you got, let's, let's not do the, 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 the cold weather scenario, but you did the same thing that we just talked about. You went out the ridge, but there was no snow on the ground. Yeah. You killed that bull and you realize, damn, I've been out of water for eight hours. I am cramping like a mofo. I can't think clear. I'm at altitude. My blood's sludging. I'm starting to get altitude sick. I need some water. And the only water you have to get is the elk wallow, right? Right or the, the stream just below where the elk herd's been hanging out. And you're like, you know, if you drink out of that, you're gonna get Giardia, yeah. right? Which is the lesser of two evils. But if you've got some chlorine dioxide tabs, you're like, you know what? I'm just gonna dip my bottle, drop in a couple chlorine dioxide tabs, gonna purify my water and I can drink all the water I need. And I'm gonna bring myself, I'm gonna bring my fuel level back up and I'm gonna be able to manage this situation, right? So the ability to purify some drinking water, And then having the ability to to supplement that drinking water with some just real simple basic calories. So think uh, energy gels or energy chews or, you know, something like that, because with a little water and a little bit of those simple carbohydrates, your 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 mind's going to continue to think clearly. And you're not going to go so far into that hole where you continue to make poor decisions. Yeah. So. You know, if if you have the ability to you know signal, make fire, uh, make shelter, uh, procure water, have a little bit of food like emergency food, right? You're going to be able to manage the situation really well. Um, and and you know, and then that's kind of the way I build out my my survival kit. And then what in my survival kit I actually have a little med kit, and my med kit is just you know. It's based on experience, it's based on your skills, but it's just basically built for common ailments, you know, diarrhea, uh, allergies, cuts, bruises, you know, uh, if I'm, you know, we, we, if we're hunting, are you capable of managing a gunshot? If you're bow hunting, are you capable of managing punctures and lacerations, you know, things like that. But all that just goes in this little possibles pouch and I'm constantly working out of it like a tool bag while I'm out there. But if you have that, and and I carry mine in a fanny pack, so if I'm going on a stalk and I'm dropping my pack, right, or I'm leaving my buddy, I have that with me. So if I do get caught out there for eight hours or, you know, my buddy's like, hey, I'm going back to camp, uh, you know, and I kill one at dark and it takes him, a, you know, a bunch of hours. He's like, oh, he's in reaching me. He's like, you know what, bro, I'll just come out there in the morning to help me. It's like, I at least have the bare minimum to To survive and ride out the night with again, puffy jacket, rain gear, those kind of things, that that I can make it work and not not be a statistic.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a pretty in depth. Um, Sorry, I'm say, a little long winded sometimes. No, I would say it's a very it's a very complete answer, right? It's it's this there like the context around why you picked each piece as well is important. Otherwise people are like, ah, he said that, but I don't think it's gonna happen. Right? Well, like what you said about the the elk.
1: Context is always important. Yeah.
2: Like what you said about that elk, like sure enough, if I did shoot an elk in that situation on that steep slope in the snow, he is gonna slide. I wasn't you know, I didn't even think about that when I decided I probably wouldn't be able to get him out. I was picturing dumping him in his tracks and I still wouldn't be able to get him out. Much less your scenario where he runs over the backside of the ridge and slides, you know, that direction is four miles to the next road. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, exactly right. Like the context really yeah. does matter. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, again, I think we need to talk about these things more often. And I'm not going to tell you, like, everything I said is is definitive, but there's a lot of uh, experience there. And I think it's it. we can all build our own kits to... Sure you know, suit our personalities and suit our environments and suit the way, you know, we choose to hunt the style we choose to hunt or the environment we choose to hunt in, you know, I'll carry a small fishing kit, uh, you know, in my, in my, uh, possibles bag when I'm out here in Montana. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I know I'm often around a lot of lakes and streams that have fish. So if I got to spend a night out, like I could throw a line out and catch a fish and, light a fire and build a shelter and be fat, dumb, and happy and get back to camp, you know, the next day. Right. Um, but I'm not necessarily going to carry the fishing kit if I'm going to say, you know, uh, let's just say Southern Arizona in January to hunt coos deer. Right. Like it's just kind of a wasted, wasted effort there. But, uh, yeah,
2: I like that yep. you, I like that you didn't really say, these are the items I need. It was, these are the situations I need to be prepared for. And those could change who you are, where you're hunting, the season. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that you also yep. called I, it
2: I, like the possibles bag and that you say, I work out of it a lot. I think a lot of people treat their survival kit as the little bag. I hope I never have to open.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I just, again, from, from my experience, what I've done, I, I think that, you know, it's like you know, do not break seal unless you know, in a really dire situation. And then we don't work with those things and and train with them enough and and use them often enough. It's like I said, I you know I broke out my survival kit. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I, I you know I use my prefab tender. I use my knife. I use those kind of things, you know, and then I sharpen the knife and restock the prefab tender, and I know it's good to go. and i I put some more fluid back in the lighter and all those kind of things. and and so now i was I was good to go. And if we think about it, you know, as a possibles bag or, or maybe a tool kit, then it's like, oh, I got diarrhea. I'm going to get into my medical kit. It's like, I'm not going to have a separate medical kit that I have those pills in and not touch the survival kit. Right. And I think it's important also that we all individually build our own kits so that I know if my buddy is stuck on the mountain, right. Cause you killed a, a, a bucket last night and I got bored and went back to camp to cook, you know, beef stroganoff or whatever. I'm like, ah, he's, he's good. He's got he's got his kit, right? Like he can manage himself. I'll get up there in three hours. I'll know he's probably got a fire going to keep the black bears away and I'll be able to find him and blah, blah, blah. Um, but oftentimes guys are like, Oh, well you got the survival kit. I don't need one. And I'll give you a classic case in point. Oof, and and yeah. I, the only reason I'm mentioning this is because I did, I did a, I did a podcast with, with Randy and Corey Jacobson and, and Corey was the one that wanted to to do it. And we specifically talked about his film, Alaska elk. And, you know, those guys, experienced experiences, Corey and Donnie are like, they made, Corey made the classic mistake. And it's like, they've set up camp and they're like, oh, we see some elk and we're going to go chase elk in the afternoon. And it's only one mile away. And then they kept moving and it's like four miles away now. Then they killed the elk at last light. Then they couldn't get back to camp and they had to keep the bears away. And then they didn't have puffy jackets. They didn't have rain gear. Luckily, they found a tarp. You know, they didn't have a survival kit. They didn't have the basic necessities. And it wasn't like, you know, Corey had nothing. At least Donnie had a few things and, and he self-admitted this. That's why I'm, I'm able to talk about it because it's, it was, it's public. You can go listen to the podcast and we just went through the lessons learned. And it's like, man, it can happen to any of us. It can happen to me, right? Like none of us are infallible, but it's like to think it's not going to happen to you, is just completely naive and unrealistic. Like it's, it's, it, these situations are going to arise the more time we spend out there, the greater the opportunity for these things to happen. It's a very dynamic environment that's not controllable. So we just need to make sure we're as prepared as possible. When you're you're inexperienced, you tend to do that with a lot of gear. And when eventually you get to a point where you have experience, you do it with a lot of knowledge and and a minimal amount of gear, but you still have that capability. And that's what ultimately is important is that you're wide-eyed about it, you understand it, you prepare for it, and then when it happens, when it happens, hopefully nothing death-defying. But when it happens, then you can react to it. And like I say, instead of becoming uh, a statistic, you just have an awesome story to tell around the campfire to your buddies. Yeah, that that should be a a shirt for you. Is is
2: <laughs> stories before statistics. <laughs> Ah, I love that, man. Yeah. I love that. That'd be great right underneath the uh, homepage of the knowledge from storms. So <laughs> Stories, not statistics. I dig it. I'll yeah. give you credit for that if I use it. Awesome. Well, man, just like that, we racked up an hour and a half of wow. of incredible um, experience, knowledge, tips, a couple stories along the way. I really appreciate uh, you sharing uh, some of your knowledge with our listeners on on. Not only like what can go wrong, but also how to overcome those situations, how to work the problem, how to, how to be better suited to handle, like you said, the, it's the when, not if situations.
1: Yeah. Well, I I appreciate you having me on, man. I, 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 love to teach. I love to help people. I think we need more. I think we need more experienced people in the hunting industry, providing that knowledge and experience to help people who either haven't done something, you know, like come out West or are new to hunting. We need more people to do that. And so uh, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come on and talk about it. Uh, yeah. And give give people the opportunity to check out not
2: only your website but your outdoor class, um, the course and how they can how they can really get. I would say what's the full version of today's podcast.
1: Yeah. So I have an Instagram page at uh, J Barklow. So my last name. Uh, where I try to post a video a week of just some type of educational content. I've got a website, knowledgefromstorms.com, where that's all free content, education, my newsletter, uh, pre-trip planning checklist, you name it, podcasts. Uh, And then I've also just got my first outdoor class done. So backcountry mission planning. Um, If you use the code BARCLOW, all capitals, that's 20% off. Uh, I think it's 30% off through Labor Day, but it's 20% off. You can get a full year's membership, not just to my course, but everything on Outdoor Class, Randy's courses, Corey's courses, Remy Warren's courses, but Backcountry Mission Planning, and it's a perfect time to talk about it because the whole intent of that is to help us all plan and prepare and train to have the best, most successful, safe big game season we can this fall. So yeah, I appreciate that. And that's at OutdoorClass.com, man.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm at. I have outdoor class opened up right now, and the full price is eight thirty three a month. Which, if I do my math right, it's like a hundred bucks a year. Yep, nine ninety nine ninety nine. Yep. And so you're getting, like, just your course alone is sixteen full chapters. Yes. Yep. And so I would say, if and if you need to use anyone's course, if you use John's course you will be happy to spend that $100 for the 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 misery and the discomfort you avoid by using it. But also, like you said, you get Randy's. I think he's got the antelope course. Corey's got an elk hunting course. Is Remy's mule deer?
1: So so, so, so Corey's got all of Elk 101 on outdoor class that you right. get access to. Uh, Randy's done uh, a rifle elk hunting course. He's done an antelope hunting course. Remy's done a mule deer hunting course. Hank Shaw has... Uh, one course out now on how to, how to butcher and cook your wild game. He's got another one coming out. Don't want to spoil it, but he's got another one coming out. Uh, there's ones coming out from Mark Livesey. Like it's insane. Jamie Teagan's got a cooking course and, and uh, you know, I've got more courses I'm building. Like it's going to be the one stop shop for everything outdoor education. And, uh, yeah, to me, it's a tremendous resource. I'm I'm a huge fan, as you could tell. Yeah, not just because I'm on there, but I would I would take it honestly. I would sign up just for Randy's antelope course.
2: Yeah, I think I'm going to have to because my wife <laughs> uh, just is in the final. She's in the final weeks of a two-year pharmacy residency, um, and she said she <laughs> she wants to go antelope hunting because I I was watching a Fresh Tracks episode and Randy. Um, he had a guest and they did the hotel and he went and got donuts and they drove around and they found some antelope, had a great time. And she goes, I want to do that. <laughs> and so, so that's her view of antelope hunting. And I'm not the most experienced antelope hunter. So I think I'm going to have to get the course just to learn and take her on an antelope hunt. I,
1: I don't know of any other course in the world on antelope hunting. And so I'm super intrigued. And I've I've hunted antelope for a long time and, and been you know somewhat successful. But that course alone is so unique to me that that content is is valuable i will tell you i'll give you another quick little secret before we sign off but to me i think antelope hunting is an undervalued pursuit out west that people would really find a lot of value in tags are easier to draw far easier to draw some are over the counter depending on the state uh they're far less expensive you don't have knee pack horses to bring them out you hunt them all day long because, generally speaking, there's a lot of them, and you get lots of stocks in, and the success rate is far, far higher, especially with a rifle, uh, than any elk hunt will ever be in the world. So I-, I think it's a I think it's a great opportunity for people. And antelope, if you take care of it, i.e. you just don't let it rot in the sun because oftentimes it's hot, it is some of the best venison you'll ever eat. I think it's
2: funny you say
1: that because
2: every time someone asks me about hunting the West, I always recommend you should start with a rifle antelope hunt. It'll be the most fun way to get into the West. It, Absolutely, there's I I tell them there's levels of skills and and to do a day hunt or a backpack hunt for big horns you need them all. To do an yep. antelope hunt, you can start with nothing. You're going to have fun. You're going to see animals. Like, you don't have to get up early. You're not doing three-hour hikes in the woods at night. You can get them out of the field easy. I mean, there's nothing about an antelope hunt that a whitetail hunter from Minnesota couldn't take on. And Absolutely. It, and it's type one fun along the way, too, whereas the bighorn hunt or the mountain goat hunt or the, you know, the limited entry elk hunt in Idaho, that's a lot of type two fun.
1: Yeah. It might even be type three. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just
2: a longer buy-in period to get, to start yeah. smiling. Yeah. 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 So, well, thank you, John. Thanks for sharing and thanks for giving everyone a place to go follow you, go check out your website, full of great information and, and hopefully get an outdoor class and start their, uh, start their Western hunting journey. Yeah. Thanks again, Brian. Yep. And thank you folks for listening.